The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawkbox. The headlines, activist investor engine number one wins a surprise victory, securing at least two seats on the ExxonMobil board promising to push the company beyond oil and to tackle climate change. We're looking forward to uh, welcoming the new directors, Greg Goff and uh, Keisha Atala, to the board and look forward to working with them constructively, collectively, and uh, look forward to helping them understand our plans and then uh, hear their insights and perspectives. Shell is ordered to cut greenhouse emissions by 45% by the end of the decade in a a landmark legal case that could have big ramifications for the energy industry. CEOs from America's biggest banks face a grilling on the hill, taking fire from both sides of the aisle. In fact, did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? I don't know the number in front of me. But well, we I actually have the upon, number in front of me. $1.463 billion. The US and China talk trade for the first time under Biden, even as the White House risks angering its counterpart by redoubling efforts to get to the source of the pandemic. And Boris Johnson's former advisor lays into the UK Prime Minister and his response to the pandemic, saying he's unfit to hold office. But speaking to CNBC, the UK's vaccine minister defends the PM. There are lessons to be learned, undoubtedly. But I think ultimately it is how you have coped over all that. So let's circle back to that headline story. Three of the world's largest oil companies now face growing pressure to do more to tackle climate change after a day of boardroom shakeups, shareholder votes and courtroom decisions. First, a small activist investor has won at least two board seats at ExxonMobil following a long-running dispute over its future strategy. The hedge fund Engine No. 1 vowed to push for clean energy solutions, saying fossil fuels pose an existential risk to the business. Speaking to CNBC, the CEO, Darren Woods, said he understands why many Exxon shareholders want to see the company focus on reducing its carbon footprint. With over 3 million, almost 3 million uh, shareholders, it's not surprising we've got a pretty wide range of views that were expressed. Uh, many uh, supported the plans that we've put out, the, uh, the work that we're doing to improve the earnings and cash flow capacity of our business, as well as the work we're doing to help advance the company to a lower carbon future. And today we heard uh, some of the institutional shareholders communicating a desire for ExxonMobil to, to further these efforts. Woods also vowed to listen to engine number one representatives on Exxon's board. I look forward to continuing to work with the, the new board members and our existing board members to, to help uh, develop, drive the plans forward, the strategy that we've got. And of course, as things evolve, we'll continue to test that strategy and our plans and adapt those to um, the progress that the world's making and society's making in this transition. 
Uh, and there's more. Uh, elsewhere, more than 60% of Chevron investors backed a plan to lower emissions. However, the proposal does not require the company to outline the size or timing of the cuts. Uh, Chevron vowed to carefully consider the vote, whatever that means. Uh, and a Dutch court has ordered Shell to make deeper cuts to its greenhouse gas emissions, ruling in favour of a challenge to the business group filed by a group of climate campaigners. The company must now lower emissions by 45% by 2030 compared with 2019. Uh, Shell said it will appeal the ruling. Um, Karen, Jeff, there are so many aspects to what's happened at Chevron, at Shell, at Exxon as well. Uh, and we can't hope to cover all of them. But look, let, let's, let's lay our cards out on the table early on. It is ambiguously good that companies are being forced to account for their emissions. It is ambiguously good that the transition towards net zero to less carbon in the atmosphere is going to be a good thing. But there are a lot of caveats to that as well. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting uh, points for our viewers who are also investors as well as a lot of them, I believe, uh, are on board with the transition. Let's go through some of them. For a start, these are court rulings against Western companies, okay? Or these are shareholder rulings against Western companies. Those IO, uh, international oil assets, those international gas assets and hydrocarbons more generally are still out there and they are still going to be... Uh, um, picked up by other investors who are perhaps outside of the remit of European and US courts, European and US, US shareholder meetings as well. Uh, and so what I thought was very instructive is the fact that the oil price isn't moving a jot on the back of any of this stuff as well. In fact, the oil price for the last 48 hours has been between 68 and $70, knocking on the door of $70. So a lot of other factors out there that are keeping the oil price high, which means demand will stay high. Supply limited, of course, by OPEC as well. We can talk about the dollar moves at the moment, keeping oil high. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of global investors out there who are beyond the remits of European courts, beyond the remits of AGMs and shareholder meetings, who will be picking up these oil and gas assets. Because as we know, in the Middle East and Asia, there are different constraints uh, on investors, different constraints on what the goals are. They want growth. They want to heat their homes. They want transportation. So I think there's a lot of reasons to say, OK, great, Western companies are getting the message. But a lot of other investors out there will still be investing in hydrocarbons. Those hydrocarbons will still be used. Uh, I think what is very interesting for corporate strategies as well, there's going to be a lot of ramifications for all of these companies from the companies not mentioned. Total has got a shareholder vote later on the week. Are they going to face similar threats as well? What does Bernard Looney's BP do as well? So if we're taking corporate decisions out from shareholders and putting them in the courts, that has very, very large ramifications too. So, uh, and I've got to say, this isn't just about uh, oil and gas coming out of the ground for transportation, for heating. It's also about a whole thing, a, a sector like uh, petrochemicals, about um, getting agricultural products to market as well. So there's a lot of other ramifications. If we dent hydrocarbon usage too quickly, uh, who's going to pay for those transitions? And that is going to come back at all of us. Is it, is it going away from the companies themselves? Is that going to be governments and de facto taxpayers? Because if you don't have the hydrocarbon revenues in the short term, somebody has still got to pay for the transition. Great news that we're moving quickly, but someone's got to pay.
Steve, a good point you raise about the investor. What sort of appetite they're going to have for these types of assets down the track? And what does that mean ultimately from where these assets are located too? There's been an ongoing question that we've all had in the back of our minds, whether you do see some of these assets move to, to friendly jurisdictions. But equally, we could ask the question whether it's private markets that may have to hold some of these assets down the track or whether you know public markets, uh, different emerging market jurisdictions will be enough or whether we have seen a, a fundamental change right across public markets, whether that's developed or developing. The other point is around the tone that we're hearing. I mean, we've done so many interviews and had so many conversations around ESG and our viewers too might be trapped in a world thinking that there's enormous change and transition going on. But I think these two stories, a shareholder fight in the courts and one in the boardroom with shareholders, effectively tells you that there's still resistance to the pace of change and the sort of targets that are being set, how to get from A to B at this point, and it's requiring a tussle with with a lot of activist shareholders. I think that's one big takeaway message from this. Also, the point that Steve just touched on, other industries, this challenge by in the courts with Shell as in as just the beginning. Uh, there's a precedent that is often uh, held up in some of these cases. And uh, what we're looking at currently is a super cycle for commodities, fossil fuels that investors at this point want to own because they see that there are going to be big cash generators uh, near term, long term question marks there, but near term, they see the infrastructure spending being very supportive for those assets. If there are challenges in the court that are demanding action on their emissions, but also what their customers are doing, I think that does put some question marks over the share trade of the rest of the commodities uh, stocks uh, that we have been tracking very closely, Steve. Karen, I think you make some great points. I'll perhaps diverge from you in a couple of ways, if I may. One, the ownership of these international oil assets hasn't been in the preserve of the IOCs for a very long time as well. So we've, we're talking about um, national oil companies very often owned by, let's say, in different regimes who basically don't have the same sensibilities as the IOC. So one thing we have to remember is the IOCs are more like service companies now, that they own less of the asset than they used to perhaps in the 1970s and, and the 80s as well. The other point, I, I probably argue, with you, I, I think we've argued before about this, but I'll just say I don't believe necessarily we're in a super cycle yet as well. Um, we, we, we have to take a lot of uh, decision makers at their word that actually they believe that a lot of these inflation pressures we're seeing and we're seeing it in milk and coffee and other products in the last 24 hours as well uh, is transitory super cycle when you've got uh, the oil cartel holding back uh, millions of barrels of oil a day uh, i'm yet to see a super cycle karen i'm not talking about a super cycle in oil i'm talking about a super cycle in other commodities and what we have certainly witnessed has been that I'm downplaying in uh, the, the copper market, for instance, and iron ore in steel. And if we're talking about oil specifically being a test for other fossil fuels, uh, for more a broader approach across the not just the energy complex, but the commodities complex, that's where we could see a challenge. The, the super cycle reference was very much around what you're seeing for the likes of a BHP and a Rio. Uh, let me just talk about the investor opportunity here, because I think the investor opportunity is mispricing and a mismatch uh, of what you've described, Steve, which I think is largely what people want the policy to be and what the policy currently is at the moment. And whether that's to do with a global carbon price or whether that's to do with the pace at which corporates are moving in this sector, there is a mismatch here, I think. And when you've got, let me just throw this on top, when you've got Alexander Novak uh, of Russia talking about a million barrel per day 
deficit in the supply side at the moment, I think that only points to higher oil prices at the moment. And I can't see what's being done with Exxon and with Shell as meaning anything other than higher oil prices, because as you point out, the technology is not quite there yet to deal with the issue of storage and to deal with the issue of transmission. We still have very costly uh, networks or grids in terms of energy transmission. The um, cost of setting them up the cost of making them smarter and the cost of preventing the kind of leakage we get on transmission is as yet not really being addressed, it seems to me. So until we've actually got a more joined up approach here with governments and corporates and um, uh, stakeholders, i.e. shareholders and other stakeholders, it seems to me there are going to be lots of opportunities for mispricing around assets that are related to this particular sector. So if I were a shareholder or an investor at the moment, I'd be looking at these announcements and perhaps trying to X out the noise about whether this is a social good or a social bad because everybody will have their own opinion and just try and focus on where they think the mispricing is at this stage. Because if you have a look at something like a renewal ETF, uh, like the iShares um, uh, uh, renewable ETF, ICLN, we had a tremendous run-up as people anticipated these big policy shifts. We've come off a little bit, I think, as people have not seen the politicians make the running here because we've all got focused instead on how to tackle the pandemic. But I think it is just worth bearing in mind that these assets have come an awful long way at a stage where quite frankly, as has been pointed out, there aren't that many great alternatives at the moment to putting um, uh, carbon-based um, substances into plastics and other petrochemicals that are still vital, I think, for keeping the global economy running. We're going to circle back to this, no doubt, throughout the programme. Your comments always welcome, of course. While we're on this subject, shares in Ford rallied after the US car maker said it will boost its effort to roll out more electric vehicles. The company has vowed to increase EV spending by a third and says it plans to electrify 40% of its global volume by the end of the decade. In its first investor day under CEO Jim Farley, the business also said it expects to increase revenue to $45 billion by 2025. Uh, still to come, plenty of noise around the CEOs of Wall Street's biggest banks as they get grilled on Capitol Hill. It was uncomfortable viewing at times. We'll show you what happened when we come back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, just a line coming out from Credit Suisse this morning that I think it is worth giving you, given how much time we've spent talking about some of the hits 
that Credit Suisse has taken as a result of the Archegos story and the Greensill Bank story. Credit Suisse in a first quarter regulatory filing uh, telling us that Finmar has imposed, uh, this is the Swiss regulator, has imposed a temporary add-on of 5.8 billion Swiss francs or $6.1 billion to the group's credit risk, risk-weighted assets in relation to its exposure in the US-based hedge fund matter. That Archegos clearly just worth bearing this in mind because those uh, assessments of risk-weighted assets critical to how the, the bank thinks about its capital levels and about what action it takes in terms of uh, reining in uh, risky lending at this point. So just to take on board the fact that Finmar is insisting they take on this additional burden at this time on their risk-weighted assets. Let's talk some more about the banks. It never seems that we're far away from issues with the banks these days, does it? The CEOs of America's largest banks were grilled by lawmakers on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. Executives were asked about shareholder activism, diversity and their climate policies. The Senate Banking Committee also quizzed them over how helpful lenders have been to consumers during the pandemic. The Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren sparred with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon over his bank's approach to overdrafts at the height of the lockdown. Mr. Dimon, how much did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their consumers in 2020? Well, you're I think your numbers are totally inaccurate, but we'll have to sit down privately and so go through these that. These are public numbers. And I also, I also want to point out we did not overdraft. Can, can you just account. answer my question? We, we how much did J.P. Morgan collect? How much, in fact, did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the we, number? I don't know the number in front of me. But well, we, I actually we, have upon, the number in front of me. Upon request, upon request, billion dollars. We waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un- under stress because of COVID. But you can fix that right now. Mr. Diamond, will you commit right now to refund $1.5 billion you took from consumers during the pandemic? Elizabeth Warren there holding J.B. Diamond's feet to the fire. Octavio Morenzi is with us, the CEO of Opimas. Octavio, What's your read on the appearances so far? Um, Is any of this going to make an impact on the way the banks do their business? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I think this was just a bunch of grandstanding by 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 some of the senators. They're pushing forward their pet projects and pet grievances uh, and nothing other than that. I think it was a really vague uh, hearing. It went in all sorts of directions. It was unfocused, undisciplined. I was expecting more exchanges like that between Elizabeth Warren and some of the other CEOs. And I think you cut off that section just at the point where Jamie Dimon says resoundingly, no, I'm not going to give the money back, which I thought was was maybe the highlight of the hearing. Um, I, I think it just sort of went all over the place and people just had a grab bag of different issues and grievances they wanted to air. And that was about it. It wasn't terribly interesting. And I do hope that no policy comes out of a, a hearing like this. I, I would find it hard to believe that it would. 
Um, Octavio, even as you say that, the producers are now having another look at that edit just to see whether we need to add that comment back in. But um, just away from some of the the touchy-feely stuff that I think you're suggesting is is not going to have any particular impact, I think there's a bigger question about whether the banks have been too hasty in writing back the provisioning they made in anticipation that the pandemic would cause loan losses. It didn't seem to me that that topic really got addressed at all at this point, but it does seem central to whether um, as we go forward and start to see some of the fiscal support programmes fade out, whether actually the banks are going to see that cliff edge of um, impairments. Well, you're absolutely right to ask that question. And bear in mind, so many of the risk models that the banks have in place are not really tuned for a kind of pandemic scenario. So they got it absolutely wrong during the pandemic. So they over-provision, as you rightly point out. They put they, they estimated we're going to have huge credit losses. And the reason really was that they a large part and component of their loss forecasts are unemployment statistics. And unemployment looked really, really bad during the pandemic. However, people were getting generous unemployment benefits. And so you didn't see the kind of bankruptcies and insolvencies you would otherwise have seen with that high unemployment. And so banks were sort of caught wrong-footed this. Well, things didn't go as bad as we thought, and now we're okay. But it's a good point. I mean, perhaps now the, these bankruptcies will come as, as this sort of stimulus gets pulled back. But it seems that unemployment is going down. It looks like things are under control. And the banks really have come out of this swimmingly. Bear in mind, if you look at things like charge-offs and write-offs, let's take credit cards, it's really at a very, very low level, almost historic lows in terms of the charge-offs they had on their credit card portfolios, which is perhaps the most sensitive portfolio they have in terms of lending. So, they got it wrong during the pandemic. Maybe, you're right, they're going to get it wrong now that things have improved. But I, I think they're probably on the right side of things now. It looks like things are getting better and all these write-offs and losses they thought were going to come are not going to materialise. Octavio, let's take a step back. We've just had the greatest economic shock since the Second World War. We've lost over 8 million jobs, uh, according to the most recent data, still in the United States. Um, Corporates have been through the greatest seismic shock in living memory. And yet we haven't had huge write-downs. We haven't had huge personal insolvencies. We haven't seen a huge rush into Chapter 11. It begs the question, have we created a load of zombies because of low interest rates in the United States? And actually, the problem uh, still awaits us. There's definitely been a lot of zombies created, and, and not just in the United States, in Europe certainly too, and in Asia as well. So there's a lot of stimulus that has gone to individual corporations, either direct payments, direct subsidies, loans, uh, monetary policy too has helped tremendously. There's a lot of firms that have become dependent on very, very low interest rates, either consciously or unconsciously. And once that turns around, they're going to suffer terribly. So there's a lot of zombies out there, yes. I mean, it's, they're hard to identify maybe because their financials might look actually remarkably good. But that is going to come back to haunt us at some stage. Now, the question becomes, do we have to support those firms forever? Uh, And sometimes these kind of stimulus programs have a tendency to be put into place on a temporary basis and then just survive forever as you start to realize, well, if we take this back now, things are going to get a bit ugly. So I, I think it's an interesting question to see. I mean, how many of these zombies get revealed now as things return to normality? I really have no direct question to answer that, but there's there's a lot of them, clearly. There's a lot of firms really dependent on the stimulus now, be it financial, fiscal or monetary. Octavia, if I can switch from the credit profile side to the expenses side and the ramifications of this hearing, because what was also raised by the Democrats was this uh, theory of banking deserts 
where there are areas of the economy now just not serviced by branches. You've seen such an enormous retreat and really the only one that jumped out was Wells Fargo maintaining a branch in uh, any of the 44 counties that have been flagged up as being at risk from branch closures. What do you make of the ramifications about the ability of banks to keep on closing more branches? And I think what jumps out to me, Wells Fargo was one of the most challenged performers here, and the others have clearly done a lot of work on, on bolstering profits on, on the revenue and expense side. Well, I thought the CEO of Wells Fargo got off fairly easily overall during these hearings. We didn't hear too much from him. That was the one time he really jumped into the action and had something to say. I mean, I think the technology is there at this stage and has been for some time to, to make a bank branch totally obsolete. So you really don't need a bank branch at all. I, I don't really know what people go to bank branches to do anymore. I mean, do they stand in a queue and withdraw cash at the counter from the teller? I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there is really no reason to go into a bank branch at all. So we, we see this throughout the world. They decline in bank branches. They simply aren't as important. Uh, they were basically used by banks or are used now as a way of, of marketing, of showing the presence of the bank and, and attracting assets that way. But there's no need to, to go to, to a bank. You can do it all of it online very, very effectively. And certainly that's what we saw during COVID. So I'm, I'm not sure why we need bank branches or why that's such a serious policy issue. I mean, we can reduce them quite easily and it won't affect your life at all. I also want to bring up ESG. We started out the program talking about the challenge from activist investors to uh, big oil and through the courts and also through the boardroom. But uh, ESG also came up as politicians were pressuring the banks about what they're doing on uh, diversity, on lending to uh, major oil uh, investors as well. And one particular case brought up was why they will not fund uh, development uh, around Alaska, but still have huge relationships uh, with the likes of Saudi Arabia and major oil investors in that country. What did you make of the pushback around ESG and do you think there are ramifications for lending standards down the track? Well, I, I think what I find interesting about the, those exchanges is basically that these members of the Senate are, are trying to push forward and get the banks to implement the climate policy that they would like to see. Now, the fossil fuel industry is a perfectly legal industry. There's nothing illegal about lending to them and financing or doing IPOs for them or things of that sort. So if the US Senate and the US Congress wants to say that should be illegal to finance that kind of activity and the activity itself should be legal, they are the people to do that. Um, and it seems strange to me that they want some other part, part of the private companies to implement their climate policy for them. They are the ones who set policy. They can set policy if they have the votes in Congress to push that through. It's just a reflection of the fact that they don't have the votes and certain members of the Senate are now trying to get banks to implement their ESG policy for them, the, what their favorite ESG policy. So it's a bit of a weird situation where uh, it's sort of a, a declaration of impotence. I can't get this done within the Senate or within, within the Congress, so I want you to do it for me. It, it's a bit odd. Now, are we going to see sort of higher risk levels there? I think, you know, banks will look at the, the financial risks involved in lending to, to fossil fuel companies and, and take that into account. But I don't think there's going to be an extra tack on for, for ESG companies. Brilliant line. Uh, uh, declaration of impotence. Octavio, thank you so much for being with us. Good to talk this morning. Octavio Morenzi, the CEO of Opimas. Uh, while we're on the banks, HSBC has announced it will exit the U.S. retail banking sector as part of its broader pivot to Asia. CEO Noel Quinn said the lender, quote, lacked the scale to compete. The British bank said it would retain a small physical presence in America, which will be used to deal with its wealth management business. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.